Hey, everybody. I know you're used to hearing me come at you at the beginning of the podcast with our traditional intro, but uh, Zach and I are here with you uh, on this Monday morning, recording right now at 7 p.m. on Sunday night, uh, 4 p.m. his time uh, with some breaking news. So I think everybody uh, is probably aware, well, or maybe not, depending on on sort of where you sit in the wine world or tech world, uh, of the news that started to kind of hit with an like an avalanche on Friday, but really began last Wednesday uh, about Silicon Valley Bank being shut down by the federal government. Um, a few other banks have now been shut down as well. And to most people in the world of uh, finance, this was a tech and crypto story, right? Uh, we had some banks that had invested in crypto, uh, other banks like Silicon Valley Bank that had not. We'll explain why they got shut down in a second. But, uh, you know, were closed and people were really freaking out about what that meant for funds for lots of different large tech corporations that had raised, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it is estimated that over half of all of America's tech companies bank with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and on top of that, a majority of venture capitalists also have banked with Silicon Valley Bank, and I can get into uh, why that is in a second. But what I think a lot of people are not aware of, except for you fine listeners, because we've been talking about a specific report by this bank for the last, basically what, Zach, three or four weeks? Yeah, I was gonna say at least a month, yeah. Is that a majority of American wineries, especially California ones, also bank with Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, there have been, there's estimates that anywhere from, as the Chronicle is reporting, you know, I think it was, thousands of wineries and then as a uh, wine business has reported at least 400 major wineries bank with silicon valley bank um and as of friday when the bank was closed it was unclear if there would be any money available that had, were in these accounts that was over the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that the fdic guarantees in um in accounts when there's a bank failure. So, you know, for the last, I don't know what exactly, like 72 hours, but more, really more like 48, it's been a lot of speculation as what this meant for California wine um, and how this was really going to deeply impact the wineries and the regions. Uh, this is definitely a bank that has spent a lot of time ingratiating itself to the wine community, specifically, uh, you know, really taking the time to understand the wine industry's sort of unique business and Rob McMillan who is the the head of the wine division is very highly respected in in the wine industry especially in the California wine industry so I think before I get into sort of how the collapse happened and sort of what the aftermath looks like it's going to be now as of again 7 p.m eastern time 4 p.m pacific Zach you know what has your sort of impression of Silicon Valley Bank been before all of this happened on Friday well, it's really funny because I was thinking about as we were discussing, like recording this, I was thinking about how, you know, the words <laughs> Silicon Valley are obviously like such a such an important part of the story because it's it's really in a lot of ways what the bank's uh, bread and butter business mm -hmm. was, was tech in Silicon Valley. And yet, as you said, as someone in the wine industry, someone who thinks about that bank and it's and it's sort of positioning through the the lens of of the wine industry and in particular the California wine industry as soon as this news started uh popping up on Friday morning it was like oh man to me it was like what's this going to do to to the wine industry and what is it going to mean and so so in, on the one hand it was it was like a good reminder that this bank that I have this, you know, I see, I have seen and interacted with this one very small piece of their business, a piece of their business that they're, you know, they had justifiably been proud of and and had you know kind of championed and promoted, as you said, but still, in terms of actual dollar figures, was a very small part of their business. Is is the part that is a is important to us, and it's an important thing to note that you know for businesses that were banking with Silicon Valley Bank, the wine businesses, you know, it, it's a reminder that the bank you know definitely had a lot else going on as you'll mm -hmm. get into and and that they were much more you know just they had no i don't think most of the people who banked with silicon valley bank they did so because because they had that long-standing relationship with the wine industry because they appreciated rob mcmillan and the and the relationships he had built for many years in the industry and their position as you know really important financiers and and bankers for a lot of the best known wineries in napa and and you know i think again you know you're the you're the 
economics guy on this podcast. I'm just the, the, the wine guy in a way. But I do think that, that it's an important reminder that even with all of those things in place, even with those strong relationships, you know, Rob himself put out a, a statement very, you know, today, I think that was basically like he was just as blindsided as everyone else, right? Like it was not something that they saw coming. And so, you know, the the thing I've heard a little bit, and again, as you mentioned, a lot of the, the customers are in California mm-hmm. and my connections in California are not as strong as they are, say, here in Washington. And I was kind of been enmeshed in a bunch of Washington wine stuff this weekend. So, but it was obviously the talk of, um, a lot of the talk of the the trade such as it is more more from a distance than uh, like oh my god i'm personally screwed but you know there's this stuff ripples throughout and uh you know we'll talk more about that too but yeah no it just was it was a striking because you because i I had thought about you know the sort of importance of this bank to the california wine industry Mm -hmm. for for some time and to think like you know even if people get you know, even if from a purely monetary sense, some of these businesses are, are made whole and nothing negative happens to them, the the loss of that centralized resource and that kind of piece of the community will be, you know, it'll be felt. Yeah. And look, like we do not know, we cannot confirm who is a current client of SVB, mm-hmm. but some names that you have seen associated with the bank for years now uh, are ones like Chateau Montalena. Westwood, Ramsgate, Dariush, really famous wineries, especially uh, famous wineries in Napa and Sonoma that are well capitalized, that have, you know, clientele of high net worth that buy their wines that, you know, bank with entrusted Silicon Valley Bank. So let's talk about why this happened, because I think for a lot of people who listen, you're probably like, okay, well, that's great. I'm hearing a lot of things sort of bandied around about crypto or bonds, etc. So if to really understand what happened, the simplest way that I can explain this is this was a good old fashioned bank run. And yeah, it's a wonderful life in real life. This is exactly what happened. So um, what happened with most banks is when banks take on people's deposits, they then invest your deposits, right? So they, and not for you specifically, right? They, they are in a business to make money as well, right? So they take the, the money that they are holding from you and they invest into treasury securities, bonds, et cetera. And usually that's not a problem. Um, they, even as interest rates change, they go up, they go down, the bank's able to weather that storm and you're still able to have access to your money. The problem here is that Silicon Valley Bank is over 50% customers from venture capital and tech. And that is never a really great thing in the world of banking. Uh, For the last 30 years, SVB would argue this has been a great thing, right? This has been what has helped it define the reputation that Zach was just talking about, right? It's this like, it's it's the smart tech bank, right? It's like, it's where you're supposed to go. I mean, I remember uh, when we were starting VinePair or even prior to that, when I was at NYU, they sponsored entrepreneurship, you know, competitions and programs. And like, they were always the bank that people recommended. And and a lot of that is because they were able to give a lot of preferential terms to founders. They sort of, they, they claimed just like with wine that they understood the world of entrepreneurship, that they understood the ups and downs. And they also claimed to understand venture capital. So one of the things they did in the VC world is, so when you, when you, raise a fund in venture capital, you raise a fund from a bunch of different LPs or limited partners, and you take on cash that goes into your fund. The issue with venture capital is that often, even though let's say that you have secured a large amount of money from like the, I don't know, the state retirement fund of Alabama, right? Let's say that because all of these funds, right? The, the policeman's union of New York, they all invest their capital places, so that their the money from the dues from their you know their membership earns money, and they don't often wire the same day they sign paperwork, right? The same day that they they say that they're going to come into your fund, they may not wire for thirty days, ninety days, one hundred and twenty days. But if you're in venture capital, the whole point is that you're investing when you see an opportunity. And what Silicon Valley Bank did a lot as well is they made themselves very attractive by offering very low or even like almost no interest loans to VCs to say, basically, we'll give you, if we see that you've already secured the funding, we'll use that, you know, those signed documents as, as guarantee, and we will front the cash for you so that you can go ahead and write that check to the next Uber, the next Airbnb, the next, you know, Amazon, right? 
And so that was very attractive to lots of different VCs. And then they brought in the companies they invested in. The problem is that a lot of deposits have begun to slow down over the last year or so to Silicon Valley Bank as tech specifically is going through what we've already sort of termed on this podcast, the Patagonia recession. Yeah. Right. So there's been less fundraising in the Valley and just across the country in general, right? It's been a lot harder to raise and start businesses uh, in the last year or so. You're having a lot of people who are the more seasoned tech companies uh, reporting low earnings, et cetera. So things began to dry up. And at the same time that things were drying up, the Fed is raising interest rates to try to slow inflation. And when they're raising interest rates, what does that do? That raises interest rates on the bonds that Silicon Valley Bank holds. Mm -hmm. And so the money is coming due. And so the way that Silicon Valley Banks thought that they were going to fix it was they announced they were going to sell off a bunch of stock. Right. So they were going to share off, they were going to sell off 2.25 billion shares after already selling more securities, after already selling $21 billion in securities prior to try and shore up the money they needed to cover the deposits that are currently at the bank. Well, that spooked off, spooked a ton of VCs. And you had VCs, including very, you know, very prominent ones like Union Square Ventures and Peter Thiel telling their companies and themselves to pull the money. And yeah. so really like on Thursday and then into Friday, all of these funds are pulling the money. I actually think, which is really crazy, Zach, I've been, I've been talking to people. I think most people in the wine street were oblivious that this was happening. Yeah. I think yeah. that even though they banked with this specialized bank, I don't think they paid attention as much as they probably should have to what was happening in tech, but they were, yeah. you know, they were banking with a specialized bank. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of wineries had their money in here still, but oh, yeah. a, a lot of, uh, you know, tech companies started pulling their money, and really, it was the the VCs pulling. Remember, we're talking about funds. These are hundred million, two hundred, five hundred million dollar funds that people are pulling out in mass, and eventually, like it just was too much, and the government just seized control and closed the bank. And that's actually happened. That happened to another a crypto bank on Thursday. Announced they were winding down, and then another bank uh, that's based in New York, Signature was just taken over tonight by the federal government again because of their you know their involvement in sort of cryptocurrency etc that is also slowing they were like 30% leveraged there over the pandemic the problem with them which is just a random aside but shows they they're a big bank to lots of nonprofits in new york so you know there yeah. there's always other industries that bank at these banks these these more regional banks but so so that's why it shut down so you know for the last like 72 hours ish, right? No one has known if they were going to wake up tomorrow and be able to take out anything from their Silicon Valley bank accounts that was higher than $250,000. Which I think a lot of people also sort of forget is that that's the only, that's the only amount that the government guarantees in any account they will insure. So if there's more than that, right? They don't guarantee that they will cover that for you if it gets lost because of a bank closure. So I have to imagine this this weekend, Zach, there were lots of people kind of like, first of all, freaking out and then other people circling, right? Like, oh, there, there's going to be some opportunities yeah. to get some well, steals. Was, <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, basically, let's put it this way. So, and you're much more of the expert on this than I am, but I want to, I will say this thing. My understanding is best from doing a lot of reading on this over the weekend and, um, you know, the, the recent joint statement put out by yep. Treasury, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC covers, you know, sort of this ground, which basically says like, if you were someone who was who is a depositor at yep. Silicon Valley Bank, i.e., like you know, yeah, you you had an account of some kind, business account, personal account. I guess obviously, presumably, they had some you know personal clients. Basically, if you if you just used it like a bank normally, um, they've said that you know you're, essentially your deposit will be protected. Now, what exactly that means, how when you might be able to access those funds. All that's kind of hard to say at this point. Again, you know, by the time you all are listening to this on Monday morning, you might have more clarity than we do on Sunday evening. But the the point is that I think if you're if you're someone listening to this who had an account at Silicon Valley Bank and you're a, a winery or someone in the trade or whatever, I, I think you will probably you should be able to get your money back mm -hmm. eventually. It's unclear when, and for for businesses that are often like cash flow intensive, it, it, uh, it's sort well, of well. So actually, as yet undetermined. Just to cut in here, yeah, it looks like as of six. 20 this evening 
-hmm. It's unclear what this means, to be honest, but they are saying they will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th. So I think – so the way Josh and I are interpreting this is this means everyone's being made whole. But this is because the government themselves are stepping in and guaranteeing this with a $35 billion backing because – Okay. So so yeah, so to, to jump ahead, I think all of this was great. Right? Everyone thought they might get their money back, as you were saying, but then everyone was like, shit, we don't know when. And how do we make payroll? And then you saw lots of people over the weekend who were basically like, we'll, we'll get, we're offering you zero credit loan or a very low interest loan, et cetera, to help you make payroll for your businesses if, you're a bank with, if you bank with Silicon Valley Bank. And I think – so what happened in the last – 24 hours really I think is what caused the government to do this so to be fair they're not bailing out the bank but what they are doing is they're trying to prevent any more panic and so Mm -hmm. in the last 24 hours they tried to go ahead and close a deal with a with probably what what most people think is going to be another regional bank the the goal according to um a bunch of different reporting is that the the federal government does not want these banks to sell to major banks like a Goldman or a JP Morgan, et cetera. The ideal fit for this is a larger regional bank like, which I actually didn't realize they were just a regional bank, but like Capital One or um, there was a whole list of others of, of sort of banks that US Bank that are that are big banks, but they're they're much more regionally focused. Uh, but they would have the capital to 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 basically secure all of this. What most people think is happening right now, though, is that none of these banks want to buy in with all the crypto these banks still hold. So they think that by sort of shoring it up and guaranteeing, you know, no more panic, everyone has access to their money, everyone calm down, that and then being able to go in there with all of their financial experts and sort of extract the real business of the bank from some of the other things that some of these banks were doing, that they should be able to, by the end of the week, have buyers for all these different banks. And then, honestly, like the, you'll just become a banker. You know, you'll, you'll become a client, if you still have your account there, of U.S. Bank or of Capital One or whatever happens as they close these deals. So that's what's, that's what's happening. But they're just saying, hey, we've, we've increased the number so that we don't set off a panic that you think that all of your money besides 250000 is gone. So look, I think tomorrow there will yeah, still be people well, that pull their money out if they can, but it's it's a very it's it's a much better situation than it was two hours ago. Yeah, and I do think that the the other thing about this that's that's important to note um, is that it's unclear. Obviously, it's very unclear at this point because as you as Adam was just mentioning, there's no idea, there's no clear sense at this moment of as the business is parceled out how it might be sold off, what things might happen. I, I think it is probably a reasonable expectation that the wine-specific service that Silicon Valley Bank provided is, there's some chance that it is retained sort of in, intact in another entity, but I don't, I wouldn't count on it. I think, I think you know, it, it's unlikely that a purchaser would be looking at that specific element of the business as particularly attractive. I, I have to imagine it was, you know, probably profitable because bank, banking is generally profitable, but I don't know that it was necessarily, I think it was, it was a, it, it, not a, ba- a passion project, probably the wrong way to put something done by a, you know, like publicly traded company. But, but I think it had a, it had a sort of, you know, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It had a kind of a, the the sort of veneer of being not a veneer mm-hmm. it just yep. it was a it was a nice line item it was a nice kind of selling point for the bank it was a you know it was a specialty item that set them apart from other banks and I, I just I mean I could be completely wrong we could find out by the end of the week that um you know that the the wine division will be just you know make it left intact in some other entity and that would be great I think I think the wine industry in California appreciates having a sort of a banking structure set up that understands the realities of, of the wine business in the same way that, you know, whether you're in uh, any other line of business, it's nice to have a, if you're working with a bank to have them have some understanding of your business. But um, I don't think that's the most likely outcome no, at this point. I agree. Um, so, I mean, this, this whole thing has just been absolutely crazy. And I think, you know, one of the thing, one of the lessons that I think a lot of people will take from this is again, just the reminder that, banks that over you know over specialize in one area like this are are not always going to be the safest right and this could have happened yeah. if the bank was over specialized in any number of industries where there are thought leaders in the industry that could 
very quickly mobilize people to turn away. And that's really what happened, right? Is there were thought leaders on Wednesday and into Thursday that were like, we need to get our money out. And the run happened and there was kind of nothing that could could stop it besides finally the government, which look, I also want to be clear, this is why we do have a federal banking system, right? Like th- th- this, this, the outcome, this is what was supposed to happen, right? This is how it's supposed yeah. to work. And like we said, the government's guaranteeing they're going to make everyone whole. Um, you know, the people who are invested in the banks who own shares in the bank, they're not going to be made whole. Right, that's you. All, you you own that stock. If you had lots of stock in the bank, etc., like they're very clear to say that though that's not going to be something they're going to fix. But if you had actually, if you had money in the bank, meaning you were an actual client of the bank, um, they you know they've they've decided to shore up enough funds in order to cover all of those deposits, which is really amazing. And look, someone's going to buy these banks. There's too many high profile clients of these banks that people would want to continue to have as clients of their own banks. Um, and I just can't imagine that in the next four or five days, everyone decides to just completely, you know, wire their money out and, and open new accounts because, you know, we all know what that does to payroll, to health insurance, to all the, all the bills we have to pay, yeah. right. Going through and updating. Okay. Well now I have to make sure that everyone knows where the, the money for to pay the checks comes from. And it's, I don't see it happening. And I think that this will get fixed before then. Um, but this has just been absolutely wild. And I think the one other thing that I've kind of heard people talk about uh, that may not ever be the same again is that, you know, we may never see again all, uh, this many wineries all concentrated in one place. And mm-hmm. that is actually what made the Silicon Valley bank wine report. So powerful is, you know, Rob just had access to all of these wineries who were really, who were very willing to give him honest answers about how their business was doing. And he was able to look at that against while staying anonymous, the deposits he was seeing and the cash flow he was seeing in, you know, coming in and out of the bank from these wineries. And, you know, I can see a lot of these wineries when the dust clears going to other banks and maybe not all being at the same place again. And that, you know, that's going to be a shame just because I do think that this is, this has always been a report that has been very valuable for the industry. Um, and so I, I, you know, I know there's a lot of hope people are already talking about that, this, you know, that in the, in the coming months, someone figures out, maybe it's Rob, maybe it's other people, how this report is brought back to life um, with the same amount of like credibility and data that the previous reports had. Because I mean, dude, we spent like three weeks on this thing already. Yeah, no, it's 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 true. I mean, it's it's weirdly timed given how you know salient Rob's reports the last couple of years have been, yeah. and how I think you know we've certainly talked a lot about it, and the industry as a whole has really talked a lot about that. And I think you're right that without the access to that many. Um, you know that that many wineries, that much that much data, it's going to be a lot harder for for him or anyone else to put together such a comprehensive report. I don't think it's impossible, and I no. think you know Rob seems you know he he put up a blog post today about kind of like what comes next, and I think it'll be really interesting to see you know what he tries to do, and and you know maybe this you know in some way furthers those efforts and and puts you know there's 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 a, a report. I'm sure there will be some kind of report in early 2024, what it exactly looks like and how it compares to previous years, hard to say, but, you know, it's definitely a bummer for the, you know, you know, certainly very well, Adam, that like the, the kind of data and the, and the ease of um, accessing it that we have at VinePair is an invaluable tool for lots of different kinds of work that we do. And Mm -hmm. even if you can get a bunch of people on the you know on email or on an online survey or whatever to respond to your prompts it's not the same as then also being able to check that against their like their actual you know the, the financial data i mean i i think that's a that's a level of verification that's just going to be harder to uh, achieve without the backing of the bank mm-hmm. well zach i want to thank you so much for making this happen yeah. tonight go make dinner uh, right? Naomi's hungry i hear i know i gotta go cook but i do really appreciate it man like i you texted and you were like, we should do this. And, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, we definitely should. So, so we hopped on and made it happen. And for those of you that, you know, skipped over this, the last 25 minutes and are already on your way to the, uh, the main subject of today's Monday podcast, 
you missed a great discussion. But no, for real, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, and now enjoy the the previously recorded Vine Pair podcast where we're going to talk about the things we drank and some other really fun stuff too. And uh, Zach, we'll be back here Friday. Sounds good. Vine Pair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. This is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, uh, I think we have like maybe two more of these before I'm going to be out for a little while. And uh, we're going to get you guest host, okay, man? You're going to oh, be good. fine. I don't I have to just to talk to myself for 30 minutes straight. That's good. Well, I'd like to hear what the community thinks. If you as a listener want to hear Zach just talk <laughs> for instead of the 25 minutes of the 30-minute episode he normally talks, you want to hear him for all 30. I'm just fucking around. Then... <laughs> Let us know at podcast.vibber.com. If you would like him to have a co-host oh instead, you don't have to email in. We'll, we'll know that you're cool with it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. I, I, I know there are – obviously, I'm sure you we both listen to podcasts where it's just a singular host. And, and sometimes I do not. I can't. Well, I just – it's just – I I don't want to do something that's that scripted. I think you have to script a you podcast to, like yeah. that. And just like hey, listeners, in case you can't tell, this is not scripted. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just, I don't think it, it's not what I'm interested in. So please, please listeners, unless you really want to subject all of us to that, just, just write it about something else, literally anything else. Just not me as a solo host, please. Yeah. Well, I think that the other thing that's really interesting is like, uh, you know, those kinds of podcasts, you, there a lot of these solo ones, you see that eventually they wind up bringing somebody in either like, a different person every time or someone to like prompt them with questions they respond to or whatever, like the producer or whatever, because if not, yeah, it's like, it's hard to just listen to someone just talk even when it's scripted. But that being said, I would like to hear you talk a little bit. So what have you been drinking this week? Good question. Well, so the highlight for me, as you all are listening to this temporally, but has not happened since we recorded this was um, taste Washington. So I will get into that next week, whether with Adam or with the, this putative guest host in the future, but big wine event here in the city. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But I think the things that I've had recently that were um, particularly exceptional. So I know I'm, I'm speaking to the correct audience about this, but I had a really lovely bottle of Zeno Mavro from alpha estate uh, yes. the other night. Uh, you know, just something that I think you Great and I are wine. both. Yeah. Just big fans of um, the variety, the producer, you know, it's just, it's striking to me how, you know, kind of complex and interesting wine it is, and yet still very affordable. Um, go buy some Zinamavro, folks, if you haven't already. And I think the other highlight for me has been uh, just really enjoying. I, I've had a couple of them recently, um, and I think I talked about it on the pod not not super long ago. Are the are sort of like black loggers or or even a like a black pilsner that I had the other day, and it's just like I love darker kind of maltier beers, but I. I just can't get myself that into a porter or a stout all that often. I mean, you know, we're here in the middle of March. It's getting to be a little nicer weather in Seattle. I'm not really looking for something that's like seven, eight percent alcohol and really kind of rich. I want, but I want some of that still kind of sweet, chocolatey, malty tone. And so, you know, your kind of dark pilsners and lagers are just a really nice uh, option. And and so, yeah, it's been kind of my like, you know, we're we're gonna get into some more real springy beer here in a bit I, I they're starting to hit the shelves and I'm starting to see them and you know starting to get excited about that but but it's still not quite i'm not quite there personally emotionally still a little in winter mode uh so those are kind of a nice midpoint for me what about you adam what you've been drinking so two things one uh i went to lullaby for the first time um recently and tim has been pretty high on the bar other people that i know as well have really sung its praises it's in the lower east side it's actually interesting it's in this when i used to live in the east village on third and b i would walk to this sort of like area of suffolk and clinton etc like a lot because it's only a few blocks south of uh houston and there were it was kind of like this weird like no man's land like there weren't any destination bars like those were all more in the this like i i consider this area like the very much eastern lower east side Do you know what i mean like when you're pushing towards clinton okay. yeah you're like avenue b avenue c etc like 
equivalencies. You're just in the Larry side, obviously. And a lot of like the bars everyone talked about were always either further north, like south of Delancey. I'm sorry, further south, like south of Delancey, or they were they were west, right? In the like, you know, Eldridge areas. Okay. Uh, and this spot is really great. I um just really, really loved uh the drinks I had. I had a star the Stardust, which was a drink created by Brother Cleve, who is a uh very famous bartender from Boston who actually recently passed away. But he was involved in the opening of Lullaby. Uh and then I had a, a an excellent, like just so dry and perfectly made martini. Mm. Just really, really great martini. Uh, and then they brought out M and M shots as we were leaving. <laughs> okay. And I was just like, oh man, I don't think I can do this, but I will anyways. And for those of you who do not know what an M and M shot is, it's Montenegro and Mezcal 50 50. It's actually a really cool combination, but like, oh boy. I was like, this is like, this is all, this is three drinks, uh, and I got to go home and cook dinner. Yeah. Damn. But uh, but it was it's a great bar, and I can see why it's getting so many accolades. And then uh, also over the weekend, um, I went to Miss Ada because Naomi was craving Miss Ada, and everyone here knows it's like my favorite restaurant in New York. And I think that Maggie, who is the beverage director there, does just a really excellent job of curating the list and having excellent cocktails and is, you know, across the board, fantastic. And she had this at a collection of different Beaujolais from the same producer, and I had one of them, and I didn't take a picture, so I don't remember. So uh-huh. I'm sorry, but just really delicious Beaujolais and very well-priced. Like, I was like, holy shit, the Beaujolais is like 60 bucks. That used to be always the case. Yeah. Um, so I think she has a really good job also finding value um, for a spot like that. So um, really fun night, and yeah, that's about it. So we're going to talk about how ABI is uh, ditching a lot of its craft brands, Zach. Yeah. Uh, you want to you kick us off there? Sure, sure. So, you know, this is a little bit building on a piece, a hop take by our good friend Dave Infante, just talking about kind of where, you know, kind of what's going on with ABI. They're in the process of perhaps trying to either divest themselves of or, or reduce their footprint in what they, slash, you know, we kind of generally consider craft beer. And to to update or to kind of set the scene for those of you who aren't as familiar, who maybe don't pay as much attention to beer as you might to some of the other categories, basically, you know, a little over a decade ago, ABI got a real kind of horny for craft beer, and they bought a bunch of breweries over the kind of next five or six years, starting with Goose Island in, I think, 2011, but, you know, a bunch of other things, um, you know, whether it was uh, Blake Blue Point or Devil's Backbone, uh, Elysian out here, etc., Wicked Weed, a, a bunch of others, basically bought all these, brought them into this sort of created umbrella sort of section of ABI's business. Uh, and we're like, okay, well, we're, we, craft beer is all the rage. We got to have craft beer. Our attempts to mostly create our own brands have f- largely failed. Um, and we are gonna basically just buy our way into the category instead of trying to to you know create beer in-house that appeals to the craft beer consumer and perhaps unsurprisingly and as we've touched on in the podcast a few times recently you know as craft beer as a category has struggled and a lot of the larger producers of craft beer have struggled especially when you take out like their success in like not beer products Mm uh it's not surprising that abi this behemoth with you know no real loyalty to any of these brands beyond the money they put into them is looking to to basically shed some of them so they've cut a lot of you know they've they've laid off a lot of people at a number of these breweries they're also in the process Mm of uh, apparently kind of full-on closing down i believe platform brewing yeah uh, which is when i used to love platform yeah fair enough and and I think with this, well, I just, I've never tried it, so I can't speak. I got yeah. no, I got no, I got no comment here. Um, but I think basically what what Dave said and what we're seeing is kind of what ABI's current strategy seems to be is like, okay, do we have a beer from this producer that it or from this you know sort of nominal brewery that is really popular? Well, we'll keep making that. They're not going to stop making you know Bourbon County Stout or whatever. But are they going to keep the full line of these breweries going? Are they going to? keep them really kind of fully engaged in making only those, those beers? Or are they going to move production of some of these, even these successful beers into more centralized 
you know, brewing facilities, no one really knows, but it does kind of create this question of like, are a lot of these brands going to just kind of wither away? Yeah. I mean, I think that the problem here and what the cause of all of this was is that a company like ABI is very used to building brands. Yep. They're not used to building breweries. Mm-hmm. Right. So like they, the problem is that when they, when they started getting nervous that Kraft was about to eat at their lunch, they started bu- buying breweries, right? Which is what normally happens, right? That's how tons of breweries in the early aughts were able to raise massive capital to start in the first place, right? Was you go out with a pitch deck that says, hey, for your $5 million investment, I'm going to value this brewery at $25 million and give you you know, 20% of my company. And in exchange for that, I am going to guarantee, based on exit prices recently, that you are going to make a 10x return, whatever, right? Yeah. And that was happening like crazy across the country. I mean, I saw so many pitch decks in like 20, you know, 2010, 2011, and, you know, a lot of the breweries in New York probably were built off of those promises. I think a lot of those breweries now have just figured out how to become profitable or, or they've gone under, right, and, and, and pay out some sort of a dividend. But, like, that was the promise, and the promise was being fueled by some of these huge acquisitions that were happening both at ABI and Constellation. Yes. Right? Constellation, that ballast point billion-dollar purchase was just fucking eye-popping and then you know you had the goose island purchase you had the wicked weed purchase lots of other stuff and then and then suntory and heineken and kieran they were also like they, they've been around buying stuff but not in the same way as abi because abi was like the big bad wolf and so the yeah. fact that instead of blowing people's houses down the big bad wolf was like oh i just bring you into my you know my pack yeah people were, were kind of getting excited there was and so then they became a money rush the problem here is that ABI's core competency is building brands inside its own brewery. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, ABI is a large brewery with a bunch of different brands. Yeah. That's the kind of way that I, I think you have to think about it as a marketer. Like it 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 knows it knows how to build Bud Light and skews off of Bud Light. So yeah. things that taste like Bud Light. Like it doesn't know how to, you know, build to take a company like Goose Island that has wildly different products mm-hmm. and build all of them equally. It knows how to take the one core product, which is, you know, the Goose Island, uh, is it Honker Ale? Which one is the, like, the big IPA one? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it knows how to build that, and it knows how to build Bourbon County. It doesn't know how to then do all the, like, build all the other esoteric shit. And for a while, I think, maybe I thought, well, that's fine. Like, let the breweries do what they want locally. Let them still do all the fun esoteric shit. Who cares? Let them open tons of tap rooms. But guess what? The problem is that ABI and Constellate, these are publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. And when you're a publicly traded company, your, your business is actually not what you sell, right? What you sell is not the business when you're a publicly traded company. The business is the share price. Yeah. The share price matters more than anything else. Your customer stops being the drinker your customer becomes the shareholder yeah and the entire and look this is this is what's happened in this in our economy so the entire purpose is maximizing shareholder value and the way that you maximize shareholder value is you do things ahead of time in order to mitigate your share price falling if sales fall so the easiest thing for abi to do to maximize shareholder value is say hey 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 we're getting ahead of this we let this get out of control we're going to we're shutting this shit down We're going to close some of these breweries. We're going to stop all this, you know, creativity happening because we don't, we're not about creativity, right? We're about profit. And so we don't care that, you know, Wicked Weed or Goose Island or whatever is now in the mood to make, you know, light loggers and pilsners because that's not what they're known for. We're going to do what we're doing with Kona and we're going to build big brands like Kona Big Wave and that's it. We're looking, you know, we're going for the next big uh, beach beer or the next big IPA, but we're not going to let them do all the other silly shit that gets in the way because they have to maximize shareholder value. And this was always bound to happen. I just think that, like, ABI talked a pretty big game early on, like, oh, we're just buying breweries and we're going to support them. And, like, because that's what it felt like was, was happening in craft. But at the end of the day, like, that's not what makes them money. What makes them money, what they know how to do is is build a brand and 
Goose Island as it as it is is not a brand; it's a brewery. They need to build behind a a brand like Bourbon County Stout. Yeah, well, and I think it's also you know you talking about the shareholders and the disconnect from sort of where maybe these businesses as independent breweries were focused, which is on you know maybe their investors, but also of course on their consumers. It's also the reality that like. I think there was a lot more, and maybe this is a little bit what you were saying in a way, there was a lot more willingness to let some of this stuff kind of hang out there and do and let these breweries kind of do their thing when craft beer as a segment was doing well. But I think that as craft beer's successes have ebbed, and I think in particular a lot of these breweries are seeing probably even more decline than your average craft beer brewery because they're not because there's a segment of the kind of craft beer crowd that will you know basically was like the moment any of these were bought it was like i'm never drinking that again because it's now owned by abi i don't want any part of that and so those people are often the most diehard and they've they might stick with uh you know their local breweries but they're uh they're not a possible space for uh these abi owned breweries to to gain back audience so yeah, I think it's it's that reality that you come into this much bigger enterprise that suddenly you're you're beholden to a whole different set of of demands and and sort of expectations and incentives and all that kind of stuff. I also think that 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 point about not knowing how to build brands, especially brands that aren't like Bud Light extensions, is actually a really interesting point, and it's it shows you as Dave kind of highlights mm-hmm. in the piece a little bit how ABI has kind of flailed around with some of these brands, not really knowing what to do, like basically taking like for example devil's backbone and like basically being like okay we're gonna put out like hibiscus lemonade flavored and these like canned cocktails and stuff um to kind of like you know like basically saying like oh we have this recognizable brand i mean kind of in the same way they did like bud light seltzer and still face this ongoing problem where like i think what is there was survey data recently that like over half of consumers believe that it has beer in it you know it's like there's kind of this like belief that it whereas like that, that these brands, that these breweries were valuable for their names, independent from the beer, or at least ABI is hoping to to make that true. And it's like, you know, it's really just I think not the case. I think you just can't really, you can't really take the brand away from the core products that built it. And if the demand for those core products has gone down, well, then you're kind of fucked. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one hundred percent true. Like, because. You didn't do anything to build true loyalty to these brands. And, you know, look, I also think ABI, for some of these brands, right, like Platform, the only way to probably build loyalty and make these brands bigger than they are, these craft brands, is actually the brewery model, right? Yeah. Like the brew pub model. But, like, does ABI really want to be in the business of brew pubs? Like that's again, that is a money loser. That does not look good on the balance sheet when you go to report earnings to shareholders. Yeah. But that is like there are a lot of really successful regional craft breweries around the country that have multiple locations and have continued to grow because they've opened locations in every city. So they they, they start to feel local in their cities, even if they're not truly local. Right. Like there's um there's breweries you know, that maybe have started in Asheville, but then they open in, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina, and they also open in Charlotte, and then they also open in, you know, I don't know, somewhere in South Carolina, maybe Hilton Head, right? And so they have all these Knoxville, Tennessee, and Nashville, all that stuff, right? So they have all these locations and in their communities they feel like local breweries, mm-hmm. even though they actually started in Asheville. But like yeah. that's not that's not a benefit to ABI, and that's why ABI closed all the platforms and ultimately closed Platform down. Platform had a ton of locations. I remember going to a platform in Cleveland like years ago and be like, "Oh, this place is fucking cool." It was a fun bar, like, and the beer was good. And I think, and at the time, it was like one of the most it was one of the buzziest you know spots in Cleveland, one of the buzziest breweries. And I think they probably were looking like, "Oh, we need we need something in the Midwest." Like we already have Chicago, like Cleveland's another beer. Say like, let's buy Platform. But I think one of the reasons that Platform was getting so much attention was because like they were doing seltzers before everyone else like they're doing a bunch of really cool stuff but part of the thing i think that made platform cool at least the location i went to was the bar was just fun it was like a fun bar it was a fun experience like like i don't know if abi wants to be in that business now i think what's really interesting is on the flip side diageo with their brewery with 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 their only beer brand guinness has decided they do want to be in that business and they are opening lots of Guinness tap rooms. 
Like I know they're open. You know they've they've got the one in Baltimore. They're opening one in, in Chicago. There's apparently a lot of others that are being teased as coming. You know I would, I think you can probably figure out which ones are going to be coming. Think about any cities in America that potentially have large Irish populations, and you, they're probably going to get a, a Guinness storehouse or get you know Guinness storehouse light in mm-hmm. these cities because they've decided that that these that this is good for the brand and they have figured out that this is quote unquote a marketing expense. Yeah, but well, I don't think ABI wants to do that. Yeah. Well, and I think the problem is like, and I think we're actually going to maybe talk about this on Friday, so I don't want to spoil that too much because because it's a going to be a very very Irish uh, episode. But uh, yeah. I do think that what comes along with Guinness is a a broader cultural cachet that is easy to translate into a a brew pub experience that people get excited about. And I think that it's it's harder to do that with a lot of these brands. I also think the last piece of this that's interesting is like I think that you're seeing ABI also struggle to compete with the really truly big and successful independent craft brewers, right? We've talked a lot on the pod recently about what New Belgium and what Sierra Nevada are doing right. They have really, really popular craft slash craft adjacent whatever beers in the market that are like growing like crazy. They under and because in a way, I think they're just it's a different it's a different, I don't know if it's a different ownership model exactly or what, but it's like they have a better understanding of what is going on in craft beer, where their audience is going, where to find, you know, growth. And just, it's, you know, ABI seems to really be flailing around because in part, I think they just sort of bought these properties because they kind of like, we got to have it, right? Like we, we need, we feel like we're, you know, maybe a decade ago, shareholders or, or some of the high powered people on the board or whatever, like, why don't we have craft beer? Why? How the future of beer is craft beer? Why aren't we there? Right. And it was kind of like, okay, well, wh- who's Helen, right? What can we buy? And with the exception of, like I said, Goose Island mostly, and maybe a couple of others, they don't really seem to have a clear, like, winner or a clear pathway to, you know, keeping these products and these brands, these breweries, successful. And again, if if you're looking at like how you know Voodoo Ranger and how Hazel the Thing are everywhere now. Like that, that's closed off a lot of avenues, I think, for some of these ABI products. Well, and like, look, here's the thing. There's one of two arguments you can make here, right? You can either make the argument that besides Goose, and and like there was a minute where Goose was everywhere. And Goose was basically like if you were at a regular bar, so not a bar that was specializing in craft beer, but just like just a regular like cherry tavern in the east village and you needed the you were looking for an ipa there's a very good chance that the ipa was goose because that's just what they pushed in sure they're like well you already buy bud bud light from us you know you buy stella from us so you know it's just gonna be easier for you to buy goose from us than like take the time to do some research and find that one random local craft right which now actually so I think, and that was a good strategy for a while. I think what they didn't predict there was that even these bars now will take the time to look for the local craft. Mm-hmm. You know, in New York now, I see lots of people who even at like the dive is like, oh, well, no, we have Green City on draft from other half or, you know, we have, it used to be sometimes like even the Brooklyn or whatever, right? Like, but yeah. even, but Brooklyn's become a big brand in New York in a lot of ways. Um, so they kind of screwed up there. Uh, but I also think you could make the argument that they they maybe didn't buy the right other brands, but on the flip side, you can make the argument that no, maybe they would have done this any brand. Like if they had bought, you know, New Belgium or they had bought Sierra Nevada, which obviously Sierra Nevada is still, you know, not for sale. But like if they had done either of these, maybe these would still be the same outcome because at the end of the day, they have they're a publicly traded company that has a lot of things to answer for, and you know. New Belgium's owned by a subsidy of Kieran based in Australia. Like, I don't know if I have to look if Lion's a publicly traded company. Um, we'll look at that later. Someone can can can, can correct me. Um, but like again, there, there's a little bit more of of wiggle room there and experimentation, and so they can allow, you know, for Kieran can allow for New Belgium to be experimental. And that's how Voodoo Ranger kind of came about and then put a shit ton of money behind Voodoo Ranger while still not totally neglecting the core that a lot of old school fans of New Belgium love, like Fat Tire, right? And the same thing, I think, I think they're going to allow the same thing to happen at Bell's, which they also just purchased, right? And what will happen with Two Hearted, which is a beloved IPA, which was a huge competitor and in kind of a sim- in the same region-ish to Goose Island, right? So I don't know. I, I think that 
ABI just as a whole, its core competency is as a large beer company that understands how to market and push and distribute, mass market brands. To be clear, too, and, and yeah, distribute. Yeah, and distribute mass market brands. Yeah. And most of these craft brands are not mass market. And even the New Belgians and Sierras of the world, they are big, big, big brands, but they are not mass market brands. Like, you don't go to a sporting event and see Voodoo Ranger everywhere. You see Bud Light everywhere. Yeah. And they yeah. know what, and they know how to do that. that that's mm-hmm. what they're good at. They know how to be in every fucking Walmart in the country. But yeah, but they don't maybe know how to be where craft beer is. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, the, you, it just then goes back to, well, then this does not look good on an earnings call. Yeah. And so it you got to cut it because the stock price cannot take a hit from something that you just want desperately to make work. And even if they might, they, I'm sure that they have some, I've met people at ABI, they're very smart people that work there. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that there are lots of people there who desperately want these brands to work. Sure. But at the end of the day, you cannot take the time to allow these brands to work if it is hurting the stock price. Yeah. And so it is what it is. Yep. Well, let us know what you think. Podcast at vinepair.com. Uh, hit us up. Got ideas. We got a, another, you know, in, in a week or so, maybe another listener question is going to be a subject for podcast. Next Monday, we're going to talk about an article that I published today on Vine Pair. So give it a read and then yeah. we're going to talk a little bit more about it. It has to do with nightlife and whether or not that could be what's hurting America's most famous wine region. And uh, Zach, have a great week. I'll talk to you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.